0: Thanks, Ali. Great to have that reading in front of us. Now, we're going to continue our series tonight uh, on Jesus Is. We're going to look at Jesus as a crutch. I'm going to pray for us, but I want to remind you now that we're going to have a Q&A time at the end of the sermon. So if on my way through uh, I'm not clear or you've got a question that comes up, please feel free uh, to bring that up at the end of the service and you might want to, I was going to say, jot that down on your non-existent Caring Connect cards. Uh, If you write that on your forearm or someone else's head, that would be wonderful. Have it, I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this word that we've heard. Thank you that it's living and active. I pray now, Father, that as the author, you'll be present through your Holy Spirit, softening our hearts, opening our ears, and helping us to be more like Jesus. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so Jesus is a crutch, that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, We want to take a walk in this worldview and think about this idea. So people who might say, Jesus is a crutch. We've got to say they've got Jesus a little bit blurry for him to be a a crutch, but but let's think about this. When do you need God in your life? When do you need God in your life? Sorry? When things are bad, absolutely. So I think uh, in order to say, Jesus is a crutch... You have to have the thought that you don't need God on the sunny times of life. Are you with me? So you don't need God in the sunny times of life. Why would I want God when everything's going brilliantly? I don't know what your definition of life going brilliantly is. Uh, The lawn's mowed, the washing's folded... My homework's done before I go back to school. I I have a full stomach, and I don't know. I'm not sure what uh, what life looking sunny is like for you. But when life's sunny, do we need God? Well, the conventional answer, if you're not a Christian, would be no. When do we, as people here tonight, feel that we need God? Well, I'd say it's when stuff's stormy, when it's not on the straight path, when there's a huge assignment due tomorrow and I haven't started it, and it's worth a lot of, anyway, you, you know, that's sort of, that's when we go, oh Lord, please. Now, I wonder, I wonder if it's when we have those moments, in the stormy moments, that that's when people see us. See, what, what does an average Christian look like if you don't know very many Christians? Well, I'm going to suggest maybe the average Christian looks like this, and not that that isn't a wonderful thing, I'm delighted, but you're not all like that tonight, are you? Have a look around. Some of you are quite young and hip. Some of you need a hip replacement. That's okay. Uh, We're a a diverse bunch. The the point is, we're not all actually just the same, and we're not all old and decrepit. But but I do wonder, this was the stat I found through the week, apparently 1.5 million people in Australia don't know a Christian. Now that's pretty striking, isn't it? 1.5 1.5 million Australians say they don't know a Christian. Now, I don't think we asked all of them, it wasn't a census question, that's extrapolated from data, but that's, that's what it works out too. 1.5 million Australians don't know a Christian. 45% say that they don't talk about religion, that sounds like the Australia I'm a part of. 45% of people never talk about religion, they never do it. Okay. So if they don't know a Christian, and then 45% of them don't talk, talk with anyone then I think that's a big deal. On top of that, the people who say no religion in the census, that's roughly 22%, 18% of them say it's because religion is a crutch for the weak. Why do I have no religion? One in five of them say because religion is a crutch for the weak. Ouch. Is that because they don't know us? Is that because the ones who do know a Christian only see us being Christians when it's stormy? Do you get that? So if we're not regularly talking to God, then what are we doing? The the time we're really crying out to God is when everything's gone up the spout, yeah? And so they see us crying out to God when everything's gone. And so it probably makes some sense. If you don't know many Christians, and the only Christians you see really praying is when everything's gone wrong, maybe it makes sense to say that religion is a crutch for the weak. So here's the logic uh, I think it was Ian who, who had this quote for me this week. He said uh, he heard somebody say, your sky daddy will help you out. Now that's devastatingly rude, isn't it really? I mean, I hope no one would ever actually say that. Ian reckons he's heard somebody say that. Um, if you follow the logic through, okay, then definitely it, Jesus is a crutch. But what does it mean? Well, first of all, those who need God are weak, yes? That's the inference only the weak need God. Converse, matching piece of information, I'm strong enough not to need God. Yeah? I think that's what it says. And I don't think that's really picking on anyone. I hope no one's going to say, your Sky Daddy will help you out. But if they did, I think they would implicitly be saying, you're weak, and I'm strong enough not to need your sort of source in my life. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. Hey? Let's, let's open our Bibles and, uh, and check it out. And we're going go to go uh, to Luke 7 first. But before we do that, I need you to identify this piece of household equipment. Does anyone know what that is? is? Mhm. Okay, guys, what goes on the fridge? Tell me, what goes on the fridge in your place? Sorry? Magnets. Yes, lots of magnets. And someone said this morning it was magnets for plumbing and, and car repair places and whatever things. Uh, what else goes on? notes, yes, notes from school, that's good, yep, Roland. I see your hand, keep thinking, what else goes on, sorry, invita, ah, look, I'm going to click that button and say that was a great answer, fantastic, I actually don't think there is any other place in the whole house that invitations live, invitations live on the fridge, where else would they be, so uh, with tiny humans in my house, where do the invitations go, they go on the fridge, fantastic, I want you to hear an invitation from Jesus. Ah, we're going to go to Matthew 11. Uh, That's on page, someone can call it out for us. Matthew 11 is on page 976, is that right, Cara? Uh, Find out. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to have a look at verses uh, 25 to 30. I want you to hear the invitation from Jesus here. Uh, We're going to pick it up from Verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beautiful words. I shared this morning, uh, the first time I really came across these words. I, um, I was in hospital, and I'd not been being very smart about my workload, and I ended up in hospital. only happened once in my life, but I was in hospital. And I got a card from this beautiful woman um, who wasn't my girlfriend or anything at that time. She was just my friend. How wonderful. That's my wife, Carolyn, over there. She sent me a card, and I had this card. Inside the card was this verse, Matthew 11:28, 28, "'Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls.'" And I remember lying there in the bed, feeling absolutely wiped out, going, isn't this a beautiful promise? Isn't this a beautiful promise that Jesus is offering us rest for our souls? And so it's become this really precious verse to me. Who's on the invite list to Jesus here? If it's on the fridge, who does it say is invited? Come to me, all who are, two things, weary and burdened people who are weary and burdened. If you're weary and burdened, you need support. If you're weary and burdened, I would suggest you need a crutch. You need something to prop you up in the midst of your difficulty. And what Jesus offers them is a thing called a yoke. And uh, kids, if you don't know what a yoke is, uh, this is another meaning of the word yoke. Uh, It's this bit here that connects the plow to the beast of burden, in which case a buffalo here. Just so you know, There were no buffaloes in Palestine around the time of Jesus. So this is purely illustrative. It just happened to be a nice picture, okay? So the yoke is the bit that goes over the shoulders of the animal and connects the plower. But it had come to mean, the yoke had come to mean, the teaching and the discipline of a learner to a master. So it was a way of speaking about if you have the yoke upon you, you're living up to the standard and the teaching of a master, okay? Okay? And so Jesus is saying, you guys have got a heavy burden on you. What was the heavy burden that these people had? Well, they had the law turned up to 11 by the Pharisees. And so what did it look like? They had this huge burden on them. When Jesus goes to town on the um, the Pharisees, I think it's in Matthew 24, he says to them, you guys are absolutely over the top. You tithe your mint and dill and cumin but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. What they created was, they looked at the Bible and gone, we need a set of rules, we need to be holy, and so the yoke that they made for their followers was, you need to get down to following the law right the way down at the absolute base level across every part of your life. And so it got down to, this is parsley I picked this morning, nine bits of parsley for me, one piece of parsley for Jesus, or God in this case. Their burden was, an overarching oppressive compliance to the law and it was impossible to keep. It was a strict religion that weighed and crushed the people. Now I don't think our problem here tonight in 2018 is that you and I are feeling crushed by the requirements of religion, just don't think that's our burden. But I think many of us nonetheless are feeling weary And burdened, what are we weary and burdened from? Not not religious compliance, from sitting in traffic. The M5 Tunnel, anyone. Narellon Road. Our, Our work that extends always, it seems, outside of set hours and into our home time. We're feeling the weight and the burden of the life that we're living. And Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. He then says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And Jeff and I were talking before the service, and Jeff told me some helpful stuff that they, they did in their life group. He said that the burden that they were feeling was guilt and shame, falling short of God's standard. And Jesus is offering them in its place a yoke, a, a new set of teaching, which they can put on them which rather than just burdening them down, connects them with the one who is driving. Jesus says, I haven't come to load you up with more religion, I've come to connect you with me, the Master. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? That sounds lifelike and full of joy, and that is what Jesus is offering to his servants We can see that this isn't something that Jesus made up. If we look at our Bible timeline, we can see that God's been about offering rest for his people, even if they've been resisting it. Uh, We see in Jeremiah 31, the people will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint, it says in Jeremiah and then Jesus comes and he tells us, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. But when will the ultimate rest be? The Bible tells us it, in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it says this. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. See, what are we, what's the ultimate rest? Jesus says, come and you'll find a rest from an overarching religious burden. But ultimately, you and I are looking forward to a day when we'll be in the Lord's presence and we'll rest with him in glory. See, Jesus is going to be a support for the weary. A support that you and I would want tonight. He's a support for the weary. We could even say, a crutch for the weary. Well, we had our time of confession before, but I I want to make a confession. Uh, This is my hedge. Now, uh, I don't have the green thumb in our family. Carrie does all the gardening. Uh, She grows things that are healthy and good for us. I've got the black thumb. Anyway, I'm responsible for the hedge, okay? It's been pretty dry, hasn't it? And I haven't been as diligent with my watering. So here's my hedge. Now, what do you think I can expect from this wonderful corner of my garden? What can I expect from it? Uh, Sorry? It's dead. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, (laughs) I think it's dead. So what do I need to do in this corner of my garden? Replant. What should happen to this magnificent bit of hedge? Fire. Burn it. Get get rid of it. Is that what someone said? Wow, that's vivid. Okay, good. All right. Let's let's have a little bit of a think about that. I, I want you to think about your soul, If it was a garden, let's take it as a metaphor, if it was a garden, how would it be doing at the moment? Is it well planted? Is it thriving? Is it full of colour? Is it dry, dusty? Has anyone been there recently, into the garden? Is it a neglected corner? We're going to have a look at uh, what the state of our souls is actually like. We go to Ephesians. Uh, it's a, Galatians, Ephesians. It's before uh, the T books in your Bibles. If you head towards the back of the uh, the Bible, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter two. I, w- I want you to see here how our souls are described. Ephesians chapter two. If someone's got the page number, that'd be really helpful. If you can call out for us, one one seven four. Ephesians two one to three. Have a listen to this. It's pretty dire stuff. What is our soul actually like before we know Jesus? There's a very dire description of our souls here before we meet Jesus. It says in 2 1 that we were dead, spiritually dead. Take the picture of my garden. That is what we were like, spiritually dead. It says in 2 2 that we were ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It wasn't Jesus. We had a different allegiance. It says that we're slaves to our passions and desires. And anyone who's tried to resist their passions and desires in their own strength will be able to say to me, I get it. Slaves to our passions and desires. And terrifyingly, in two, three, it says that we were deserving of the wrath of God. Romans puts it this way. It talks about a fundamental inability before we knew Jesus. It says in Romans 8, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Now, if there's ever a dire description of our state before we met Jesus, this is it. It talks about inability, hostile to God, shaking our fists in His face, And then it says, we were unable to please God. That's a dire state, isn't it? That's a state where we are dead and lifeless. And I want you to know that we were, before we knew Jesus, or we are tonight, if we haven't yet taken him as a saviour, in worse shape than we knew. We're in worse shape than we knew. So what do we need? What is this dead dry lifeless soul need it needs a savior and needs a savior it says in 1 peter 3:18 for christ died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to god it's on the cross that jesus brought life back to our lifeless souls we were more broken than we knew and we needed a savior i want to show you this picture Uh, I'm the one on the left, that's me, in about 1984 I think, so some time ago now. Now I broke my leg, I broke both bones in my left leg, which is pretty cool, straight through. Um, Now I had a full leg cast on, has anyone done the full leg cast? You do all these funky boots these days. Back in the day, it was a massive amount of plaster cast from there all the way down to there. And uh, I had to try and stick rulers down it when I got itchy, all that sort of stuff. It was massive. Anyway, here's the thing. I'd broken my bones through clean, massive cast. very, very heavy, but it's also very strong. And so what I decided was walking with crutches was heaps awkward, right? I don't want to use crutches. What I found was, get rid of them. You can walk on this thing, right? It was great. And I could start chasing my brother again. And my brother was able to... So I just walked around on my cast. What happened though of course is made of plaster, it started to crack and I have to go to the hospital and get it fixed up again. The third time they were fixing up my cracked cast, I don't know how my mum put up with me anyway, the doctor sat me down and he said, now Stuart, I don't want to have to do this again. Do you know what will happen if you keep walking on this cast? I'll have to come back and get it fixed again. He said, no, let me show you. And he pulled out an x-ray. And it was the x-ray of a leg that had massive screws through the bones that were in the leg. He said, if you keep running on this cast, your bones will not heal up right, and I'm going to have to put screws and plates through your bones inside your leg to make sure that it heals properly. I was terrified. I never used anything other than the crutches again. But here's the thing. Before I saw that, it was invisible to me what was happening. I threw the crutches away because I didn't know how badly wounded I was, and I thought I could get by without the crutch. Jesus says we're more broken than we know, and in that case, you need a crutch. You need a crutch because you're more broken than you know. Uh, does anyone like playing Monopoly? I think I've asked you guys before. How does? Did, no, no, seriously. Put your hand up straight if you like playing it. Oh, wow. Okay. When does Monopoly finish? Sorry, someone said it straight away. What was it? When someone throws the board. No one actually finishes. Has anyone really finished a proper game of Monopoly all the way through to the end? You have. You win every time. That's why you have finished a game. Although I reckon that must have been there must have been some board tipping before that. Anyway, that's when Monopoly finishes. When it's getting in the terminal mode, though, what happens to the properties? What do you do with the properties? Yep, but what's happened to them already? They're mortgaged, right? Do we know anything about mortgage here in uh, in Oran Park? Not just Monopoly cards. Some of you here, if you've been playing kids, if you've played uh, Monopoly, you'll know what mortgage is. Uh, Let me just quickly speak to some of the adults who might have mortgage in mind. Uh, The average mortgage in Sydney apparently is $600,000. In Oran Park, places are going, I think last year on average, for 750 grand, so there's some serious mortgages floating around. I want you to think for a moment, what would it feel like if your mortgage was cancelled? What would it feel like, do you reckon? (laughs) (gasps) Well, I won't do it for you, will I? Would it feel good? Would you feel an incredible weight off your shoulder? Would you feel free? If all of that debt was suddenly cancelled, I reckon it would be life-changingly different. Think of what you could do that you can't do now if that debt was cancelled. Jesus tells a story about debts. And he tells it in Luke 7 here. He talks about two people who are at a party... I don't know what the invitation would look like, but this guy, there was a guy called Simon who was a Pharisee. Uh, He's smug and he's strong. He's smug and he's strong. There's a lady who comes to the party and it's my assumption that she wasn't on the invite list. In fact, I was reading something through the week that suggested that the poor and the outcast could potentially come to a party and pick up some of the leftovers. So that's the capacity at which she's come. How does she feel? Well, we're told that she is a lady who lived a sinful life and she must have been full of shame. So we've got a guy who's called the party, who's got Jesus as a guest. Imagine how good he's feeling. And we've got a lady who's coming under the pretenses of picking up the scraps, full of sin and shame. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 7 and verses 36 to 43. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. It's really interesting, isn't it? Maybe, maybe it's worth noting tonight. Jesus loved the poor and the weak, but I want you to see he hung out with the rich as well. Isn't that surprising, right? He went to this guy's place. He was reclining at his table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So, and this is radical, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Jesus told this story, and it's immediately obvious the way it works. There's somebody who has a small debt and somebody who has a large debt. And Simon is saying, Jesus, you don't get what's happening here. This is a sinful woman. And Jesus, in his beautiful way, says, let me just tell you a story. Let me see if I increase your insight by moving it away from you, and let's talk about someone else. And I think this is amazing. I think we often have this same ability. When it's a story that's not about me, I can see immediately what the story is. Right? So Jesus tells this story. He says, who would would love more? Because it's obvious, Jesus, the one who had the bigger debt. And he says, well, right now, standing in front of me are two people. One of them thinks he has a small debt, and he loves me a little bit. There's a woman here who has an extraordinary debt. She's aware of her sin and her shame, and she has loved me extravagantly. And he goes and tells her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. I think we need to know that what Jesus is seeing, this is a beautiful quote I saw, it's not what the sinner is that Jesus sees, but what the sinner could be through God's love. Isn't this great? It's not what the sinner is that God sees, but what the sinner could be through God's love. So Jesus looks and he goes, Smug boy, I can't save you in the midst of your self-righteousness. This broken-hearted, sinful woman, I can help her. She'll let me because she's got nothing left. And so Jesus sees through into the potential and goes, This woman could be absolutely transformed by my love. Her massive debt means she'll love massively because she acknowledges it. This guy, I think, can be us. I want us to think for a second. Do you feel at times that you're a little bit better than most? Do you look down on those who are enthusiastic in church? Clapping in church, come on. Really getting into it, raising your hands or something. You can raise your hands. But but do you look down on them and say, just over the top, chill out. Do you feel like you're probably going to be okay because you're one of the good ones? These will tell the size of your debt. If you're feeling like it's a small amount, I want to suggest to you, there's a good chance that you'll despise the cross. Why would Jesus go to all that desperately horrible, ugly stuff that happened on the cross? It didn't take very much to forgive me. I was one of the good guys anyway. If we think we have a small debt, I'll suggest that you are possibly going to despise the cross. The debt forgiven will reveal the size of your love. Those of us who will feel the weight of our sin will love our Father back for the extraordinary cost he paid to have us forgiven. I want to suggest to you, for those who are worse than they knew, Jesus is a wonderful crutch. I want to suggest to you, for those who can't heal themselves, who can't bring dead gardens back to life, Jesus is a wonderful assistance that we couldn't do without. So what should we do? Well, is Jesus a crutch? Well, let's say yes. If Jesus is a crutch, he's a crutch fundamentally to those who are weaker than they knew. How wonderful. And so I want to ask you tonight, whether you're mocking or agreeing with Jesus being a crutch will depend on how large you see your debt to be. I don't need a a crutch. Great. I hope you're happy in your self-righteousness. Those of us who'd say, no, I think there's something in this, and this came from our life group for the week. No, Jesus isn't a crutch. He's far more than that, isn't he? That's to sell the resurrected king and judge of all short of his glory. Jesus is a crutch. Sure, he is, but that's not all he is. He's the judge. He's the son of God. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the resurrection and the life. Jesus is a crutch. is only telling half the story. Will Jesus be your God for stormy and sunny weather? Stormy and sunny weather. He will be, if you realise the place that he can play in your life. Jesus offers a better yoke for the weary. He offers resurrection hope for those who are spiritually dead and he offers to cancel the debt of those who are mired in sin. If that's the case, then I'm broken and I need a crutch. What do you say? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful way that you come and assist us when we're beyond our own resources. Lord, we desperately need you on stormy days. In the midst of our sin and our weariness and our doubt, we thank you that you show us grace and come and save us through your Son. Father, we pray too that we wouldn't forget Jesus on the sunny days that we might take his yoke of connection and that we might love having him as our Lord and Master. Help us to live these things out, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Do we have any questions? Now, the way the questions can work, that can be questions from tonight or they can be questions from other things that you've got floating around your heads and hearts uh, over the course of this week. Has anyone got a question arising from tonight? Yes, Carol.: Lauren, stop laughing at my beautiful wife. I was a half hand up. Um I think if someone's saying to you that your faith is a crutch, I think they say it in the sense that it's a bit of a fairy tale thing you've made up to make yourself feel better. And so it's kind of hard to come back at them. I think the stuff you talked about is great and I think it's true and we do need Jesus. So, but it would be hard to say that back to them. So I think they often say in the light of it's just fairytale made-up stuff to make you feel good. Yep. How, how would you come back to them? Sure. So the, the Sky Daddy kind of comment, right? Your Sky Daddy will take care of you. Jesus is just a crutch for you. Now, I, I, I think I'd say, um, has there been any time in the last year where you had a struggle that was bigger than your ability to respond? Have you had a struggle in the past year that was bigger than your ability to respond? Where you thought, "I'm out of my depth." Have you had a situation like that? Now I have. Have you? you, have you have, yeah, some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you are just cruising. You're coasting, which is fantastic. Sunny days where you live. Uh, when you're in those circumstances, and I would say most adults will have had circumstances where they go, "I know what it is to be beyond my means." I'd say, what do you do when you're beyond your means? Almost invariably, everybody will pray in the midst of a desperate situation. Because we innately acknowledge, I need help bigger than me. Even if I've never prayed before, oh God, please save my son who's in hospital at the moment. Right? Everyone's going to pray that prayer. The the, the line is, there are no atheists on the front line. Have you heard this? So in war... They say there are no atheists on the front line. In other words, everybody faced with immortality in a situation that is utterly beyond their, their control, buries their head in the dirt and prays for God's mercy. The person who wants to go, you're, you believe in a sky daddy, and you're, if you can have a real conversation with them, and it sounds like, I think that's a pretty just dismissive one, but if you have a real conversation, I'd say, do you know that sense when you're beyond yourself? Jesus for me is the place I go when my needs exceed my capacity. You can make fun of that if you want, but I find peace and strength and energy bigger than me when I pray in those circumstances. Now, I don't think we're going to satisfy the cynic, right? I really don't. I don't think you can solve the cynic. But I think you can say something that rings true about human nature and about the difference that Jesus makes for you if he does. Right? If you do feel that joy and strength, does that make sense, Kara? Is that? Yeah. So I'd go back on, can we have a, a bit where we connect about felt need and say, Jesus makes a difference for me in those circumstances? Yeah, we've we got another question. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Always happy for us to, um, to chat further, so if you want to chat with me over supper, that's fine. Um, I do want to say to us, uh, guys, that um, I think the hardest thing for us to respond to in all these things is the person who's the determined cynic, and uh, at some level, we, we really can't answer the person who's determined to make fun of you, but I think you can speak about what we know. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take the, um, the Lord's Supper together, and I hope despite the fact that they're little bits of bread and a tiny little cup of juice, that as we do this, you're reminded of the reality of Jesus, the great hope that He is, and that it might strengthen your hearts and your souls. So tonight, if you're trusting in Jesus, I want to encourage you to take the juice and the bread. If you're here as a kid and you haven't had a chat with your mum and dad about it, it might be best to let it go past... But I pray you find some confidence, some assurance, some joy in doing this tonight. So, why do we do it? Well, on the night before he died, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And he said to us, Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup, and it wasn't plastic and it wasn't small, but he took the cup. And he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's uh, say this together. I'll, I'll do the light bit. You can do the dark bit. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do this until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, come, let us eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So, what we're going to do is we're going to pass uh, the, the bread and the juice around. If you can hold on to it, and then we'll take it together. Jeff, if you can give me a hand, that'd be great. Um, Jackie and Henry, do you guys want to come up? And uh, Peter, do you want to come and give us a hand? No. Uh, Mary, do you want to come and give us a hand? That'd be great.